0: What's up everyone? This is episode number 44 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on my social media. My Instagram is at Podcast, My Twitter is at PC. Uh, it's been a very busy week on social media. Those of you that follow me already, you probably saw me posting about one of the um, major group breakers this week. And real quick, just for some background, this group of breakers pulled a 101 Mark In Prison Nebula, um, and then they put it in a magnetic in a way that could have possibly have caused major damage to the card. It wasn't placed in there um, correctly, kind of in the grooves as it should be, but it was still shut and then sealed. Um, so it looked like it was sandwiched between the two pieces of the one touch. However, the the breaker company's branding sticker to seal the magnetic was nice and neat. And um, you know, I created a, a video that played out a similar scenario. Obviously it was satire. Um, I know a few other people posted about it as well. Anyway, I guess the breakers were unhappy about the negative attention that the whole thing received. And instead of just answering the original post, You know what happened to this card and showing that the card was all right as it very well could have been they instead bought the card back and cut it into pieces during one of their live breaks and you know i'm sure that was all over social media this week you saw that Um, i'd have to watch the whole thing again but I, i believe they even threatened to slap some mothers in the process now look just like any other profession i know There are good breakers and there are bad breakers out there. Um, There was a lot of of heat placed towards breaking in general this week. I don't want to lump everyone together. And I'm not even saying that one instance of sandwiching a card in um, a mag makes a, a breaker a bad breaker to buy from. Accidents happen. In fact, a lot of people like this particular breaker and express to me that they take care of their customers. I bought into their breaks a handful of times and have had no issues. But it's these kinds of hiccups and goofs and incidents in breaking that serve as a good reminder for all of us that are involved in the breaking process. If you're a consumer, which I know a lot of you listeners are interested in group breaking, if you're a consumer, you have to do your homework. I bought into breaks before with breakers I didn't know, um, and then come to find out when I'm watching the break, they treated the product horribly. Lesson learned. Chalk it up as an experience cost. I bought into breaks and later found out that certain breakers were making repack products that seemed suspicious to say the least. Lesson learned. As a buyer, it's my responsibility to examine this stuff for myself ahead of time. If you're a breaker though, maybe some of you need to slow down and be a little more careful. Um, some of the things I've seen on, on video are incredible. I remember one breaker I used to watch, he had a week where he was constantly playing with a bursa sack on his elbow. You can't make this stuff up. And for some of you guys, maybe just slow down. Breaking is not a race. Or maybe just turn the TV off for a minute or two and make sure other people's cards are treated properly. Whether the customers are part of your normal breaking family or not. Look, you guys are all grown. You can spend your money however you want. But I thought that, you know, this was all worth pointing out and for the sake of the, the Lori Markin and collectors out there, I know there are a few of you at least. Um, I'd love to see if Panini would reprint the card or if they could supply some sort of a replacement. That probably requires printing an entire new sheet and the logistics would be messy, so I doubt it will happen, but if it could, you know, maybe they could put it in the reward store for charity or auction it off for charity. Like I said, I doubt it would happen, but I'd like to see something good come from the whole thing. So who knows? Collectors speak out if that's what you want. Maybe they'll listen. Who knows? All right, moving on. Um, I want to talk about two main topics today. So first, I want to talk a little bit about an upcoming release called Panini Revolution that's slated to hit shelves on January 17th. If you're a fan of other sports and you're listening today, you might enjoy that segment because it goes all the way back to the Pacific brand in the late 90s. The second topic I want to cover also has implications for multiple sports, and that's Panini's new blockchain initiative. Alright, so first things first, let's talk about Panini Revolution. You guys have probably realized by now that I don't preview every basketball product, but I do want to talk a little bit about this one because I think there's a lot of interesting history behind it, and history that predates Panini's current involvement in the basketball card world. So I want to give you all a revolution background, before I preview the product that we're going to see in a couple of weeks. Those of you that are familiar with the current basketball version, you probably know that it was introduced as a standalone basketball set in 2015. But the Revolution set and the branding itself goes all the way back to a company called Pacific in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, There were Revolution football and hockey sets starting with the 1997 season, and they added baseball shortly after in 1998. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole company's struggle to even get into cards, but there's a lot of interesting stuff online about that. Just know that they were producing these standalone Revolution sets in the late 90s. Um, I haven't talked any about Pacific on the podcast before and the reason for that is simple. They stuck to those three sports and never had a mainstream basketball set. But their history is still important though because without them we wouldn't have Panini Revolution. So, I want to take a minute or two to talk about that before I move into all of the basketball stuff. All right, so, like I said, Revolution was part of the Pacific brand in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, Pacific in general was known for their inserts because a lot of them were really bright and they used all sorts of foils and die cuts. And, you know, as I alluded to already, they worked very hard to even get into the industry. And once they got there, they were always changing the game and trying out eye-catching designs in order to get people's attention. Well, after fighting so hard to get their baseball and football licenses, they actually ended up losing them in a series of scandals, and that pretty much did them in. That's why we don't see Pacific today. Um, While we've never heard directly from the company's former owner about the lost licenses, there are a couple of theories about why they lost them, and chances are it had a little to do with both of them. One of them revolves around an internet blogger that identified himself as Card Cop. This was a guy that you know really pressed them regarding the authenticity of their memorabilia cards. That was right when those were starting to um, take off and get really popular. And he even turned over some of his conversations with Pacific executives to, base, to, the, um, to the Baseball Players Association, not long after the license was gone. They also had a Manny Ramirez game-used bat card that got released to the public that featured a big piece of cork in it. And for those of you that don't know, uh, people used to think that you could swing a bat faster if you hollowed part of it out and put cork in it. Um, And mind you, that was against MLB rules to do so. Um, Provided that this bat Pacific acquired was game-used like they said it was, it's not their fault that Manny was corking his bats. But in an era that was already chocked full of scandal, you know, I don't think MLB was too happy about that. So either way, whether it was the work of this blogger named Card Cop, or the accidental release of this Manny Ramirez corked Bat Relic, or a combination of both, the point is Pacific lost their baseball and football licenses. And then hockey wasn't enough to keep things afloat, so the company eventually bankrupted in 2004. Well, in 2004, A company called Donruss Playoff acquired the rights to Pacific, and then, as you guys know from episode number one of the Wax Museum podcast, or if you haven't listened to it, please go back and do that, Donruss was purchased by Panini and became Panini America in 2009. That's why you see Donruss designs or Donruss reboots from time to time in current products. And so then, that's how we got Revolution, which was originally a Pacific design, purchased by Donruss, which was then purchased by Panini. This revolution design stayed dormant, though, um, even though they had the rights to it, um, for another six years, until the 2015-16 season, um, when they reintroduced the base set into the card world for the first time as a standalone basketball set. Um, If you would have told me in the late 90s that a sticker company, because Panini was to me was a nobody then, I know they made stickers and they were in the international market, but I didn't know about them then. If you would have told me that they would be copying one of the wildest football designs, and then including all my favorite basketball players, I would have thought you were crazy. But then again, this hobby is something else. Um, obviously to bring this product up to modern standards, Panini has added a few numbered parallels over the last couple of years, but even then they haven't gone entirely crazy with it. For the most part, Revolution Basketball is, is, um, is, and always has been a chase for the different inserts and parallels. And while this could also be said about Prism, Prism eventually added memorabilia cards with Revolution that still hasn't happened. There are no memorabilia cards, and the autographs have super tough odds, even though they have gotten a little easier over the years. They're still very tough. Um, Okay, so this product came out in 2015. Let's talk about the initial reception, though, because the product has changed a little even since the first release. Um, When this thing was first marketed towards the end of 2015, it was described as an old-school pack-opening experience with eye-dropping inserts and parallels. Hobby Boxes contained a total of 40 cards, which had seven parallels, four rookies, three inserts, and only one card numbered to 100 or less, um, which there were three possibilities for those. You had Cosmic numbered to 100, Sunburst numbered to 75, and Futura numbered to 25. Uh, There were also a series of unnumbered parallel cards, which included the Infinite, um, and Nova, which were both one in six packs. Angular, which were one in 12 packs. Um, so none of those were really tough pulls. But then there's Galactic, which you probably heard a lot about since then. Galactic was one in every 288 packs. Okay, so there's, there's pretty tough odds on those. Um, it wasn't long after the product came out that people used a little bit of reverse engineering. I talked about that with Mark. Um, A little while ago, they used reverse engineering to figure out that there were roughly 15 Galactic cards for each player. About a month after the product came out, someone on Blowout mentioned that a Maravich Galactic sold for around $100, a Dr. J sold for $200, um, one of the Iversons sold for $300. So there were some big spenders on these from the get-go. But the question was, you know, will these things hold value over time? Breakers didn't seem too too enthusiastic about the product, so they weren't pushing it. You know, think about it. It's a product that requires a little bit of knowledge and attention to detail, and then there weren't a lot of actual hits, so that's kind of a bad combination. Um, On top of that, the parallels weren't marked on the back of the card until 2016, so there's a chance that people broke these boxes and had no idea if they had a common Nova insert or the super elusive Galactics. And it's my understanding that the product still hasn't changed a lot over the years, although it has become more popular. You had the excitement and mystery of the Galactic Parallels, and then some of the um, 90s collectors really seem to enjoy these boxes as well. It's not a super expensive product, which helps, though. Um, The first box, and actually the only box, remember, I don't bust a lot of wax, that I opened was um, 2016-2017. So that was the second year and that second year had a very similar structure to the first. The numbered parallels were the same. The other pattern saw a few changes with the unnumbered parallels then being um, astro, fractal, galactic, infinite. Um, So the astro and the fractal ones were new and one nice change though was that they started labeling the parallels on the back of the card. Um, The next year then in 2017-2018 They ramped up the parallels a little bit. So the full um, list now included the Chinese New Year, which was an international retail exclusive, um, Astro, Fractal, Galactic, Groove, Impact, Cosmic numbered to 100, Sunburst numbered to 75, um, Cubic numbered to 50, and then Lava numbered to 10. So they cut out the Futura, which was numbered to 25. They added Cubic, and then they added Lava which, like I said, was numbered to 10, making it more scarce than the unnumbered Galactic, which we assume still has the print run of around 15. Uh, The lava parallels seem to bother people more than I thought they would. For one, they didn't like the appearance, and then two, a lot of people felt like it kind of threatened to undermine the importance of the Galactic. And people seem to be very defensive of those Galactic parallels. I have one. You know, it's not a high-profile player, Um, You'll hear a lot of people say, well, you know, you've got to see these in person and opinions still vary on those. You know, I've seen people say the same thing about PMG Reds and some people just it doesn't do it for them. And that's fine. Um, You know, these don't really appeal to me as much as a lot of other cards, but that's the great thing about collecting. We all have our preferences. I'm I'm not saying it's not a nice looking card, but it just doesn't um, have that huge appeal to me like it does some people. What I've noticed though, that is that the, the people that like them, they like them a lot and they talk about them a lot, but you know, to each his own. Um, all right. So lava was the lowest numbered parallel for only one year. And then Panini added yet another lower numbered parallel in 2018, which was called the hollow gold. And it was numbered eight. Uh, it was part of the international Chinese new year's boxes, but, um, you know, those are still, attainable you know you know we have a very international market now Um, I kind of feel like that has eroded people's trust though in the parallel structure over time but the Galactics have the continuity that people are real big on so I do see some of the appeal in them from a logistics standpoint Um, it's no surprise then that Galactics will be back and will be a prominent selling point in the 2019 2020 release looking at the sell sheet we're going to get some of the same stuff we've come to know and love Um, the eye-catching designs that give off a 90s vibe, the rare on-card autographs, and then the bold inserts and parallels. Hobby boxes for this upcoming release are going to have 40 cards each with four rookies, two inserts, and eight parallels per box. You know, that's nothing new. We're going to have the same numbered parallels with the addition of a higher numbered parallel, which is Impact, which which is out of 149. So, To the best of my knowledge, they didn't add anything lower. Um, There are one-of-one autograph parallels, but those were around before, I just didn't mention them. And then the suggested retail price on these is $75. Right now I'm seeing pre-orders more in the $100 range. Hopefully those go down a little bit. Um, I think it's a fun break, but it can be rough at the $100 level. Anyway, uh, those of you that have enjoyed the set in the past, it looks like you'll probably enjoy it again. Those of you that are new to the hobby and want something that's relatively cheap to break, let this product come down a little bit in price. um, And it could be a good option for you as well. You just might want to watch some breaks on video just to get a feel for it and see if it's something that you might like. All right. Uh, Moving on to the main segment of the episode about something completely new that Panini is trying. Uh, Back on December 19th, The company took quite a few people by surprise when they put out a press release for their new blockchain product called, coincidentally enough, Panini Blockchain. I know that there's nothing wrong with that name, it tells you exactly what it is. I want to take a moment though to read some excerpts from their press release so we can hear straight from them what this new product is all about. Alright, it says Panini America announced today that it will introduce the first officially licensed trading cards featuring blockchain technology. The release of the blockchain trading cards will incorporate Panini's popular national treasures design and will feature 100 athletes. And then they went on to name a number of them. On the basketball side, it includes players like Kobe, Zion, Steph Curry, and Giannis just to name a few. Um, So before I move on, I want to look at the phrase blockchain technology. And I definitely had to do some reading to learn more about this because I have zero experience with blockchain technology. And I also wanted to figure out if this actually lines up with that technology, or if this is going to be more like Panini's Dutch auctions that weren't really Dutch auctions. And my first impression when I heard the word blockchain was that this involves some type of digital currency. When I say that, I mean things like Bitcoin and Litecoin. Those are both digital currencies that already utilize blockchain technology. And that's really important for currency because it allows for data or digital properties to be distributed but without being copied. There's plenty more that could be said about that, but that in itself is an entirely different world that involves mining and all sorts of other things that don't necessarily apply here. But the whole concept of allowing digital properties to be distributed is very important. In this case, blockchain technology isn't so much about currency as it is records keeping. The best Simple explanation of the technology that i found is that it is a digital ledger stored in a distributed network. I'll come back to that concept in a little bit as it pertains to cards. I know this might be a little confusing right now, just hang with me. I want to make my way through the rest of this press release first. Okay, so the release continued. Panini's blockchain trading cards will launch in early January 2020 and will be sold in an auction format in U.S. dollars as opposed to a digital currency. 10 new cards will be released each week. The blockchain asset will live on a closed Panini platform where sports fans and collectors can buy, sell, and store their blockchain trading card assets. Alright, so right away that gives us a little insight into the digital storage of the card. Obviously there has to be more to this though, or it would be the same thing as their other digital cards, the Panini Dunk Program, which is so worthless you probably don't even know about it. Um, The next part, though, is what differentiates this from other digital cards, but it also raises a number of questions for me because it says each card is a unique one of one card that not only includes a blockchain digital asset, but will be accompanied by a physical version of the card that includes an autograph of the respective player. In some cases, the physical card also will include a piece of memorabilia. The blockchain asset will be an exact representation of the physical version of the card. Okay. So they're stored digitally, but there's going to be a physical version of each card as well. I'm not sure how that's going to work or how people will have access to that or how they can trade these in a digital marketplace. But I am glad that there are actual physical copies of these. Otherwise, I don't think a picture of a card is very collectible. And I don't think a picture in itself is a valuable commodity. So it wouldn't work for collectors or investors. Okay. And then finally, Panini closed this release by saying, with some cards selling on the secondary market for six figures, and as the popularity of trading cards continues to grow in the global marketplace, the blockchain technology also ensures another level of authentication for Panini's product and high value cards. Um, So they mentioned in there that this is um, kind of an investment vibe to that. Um if you want an, another take on this and you know some more thoughts on the financial aspect of this, you might want to listen to um Drew. He did an interview on uh Let Me Get That Potograph. Um that was a, a pretty good, you know, different perspective because there's a lot of information we don't know. So if you want to hear more on that or hear a different take on that, listen to him. I enjoyed listening to that. I'm gonna kind of address um another side of it today though. Um And just like, so so going back, looking at Panini, just like some of their other recent initiatives, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of information. I don't know if that's a result of Panini not thinking things through very well or just a failure to communicate what their plan is from the start, maybe even both. Um, So in order to talk about their utilization of this technology, I'm going to present a couple of different scenarios that I've seen discussed on some of the message boards and social media. And my first thought after going through this whole press release is that once again, the concept itself is not bad, provided they go about it in the right way. And that's a really, really big if statement because Panini has really messed up a lot of stuff and a lot of their initiatives haven't gone that well. But I think if it's handled well, this could actually be very good. I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but I think it would be really good for um, National Treasures RPAs. I think it would help us to keep a, a record of these high-profile cards. We would have pictures of the patches from the start. We would know who owned them and when, but I'll talk more about this in a little bit. As it currently stands, though, they're only going to use this for 101 1-1s that they're creating, especially for this program, which I don't really like that idea. You know, they're creating 100 cards that will be auctioned off directly. When they do that, they're essentially doubling the amount of high-end chase cards that help push their product. And then they're going to be selling them um, at auction. So what about the people that buy cases and cases of this stuff to chase the big rookie logo man cards? Um, In this instance, it would make more sense for them just to buy the card, right? However, once this thing is up and running though, I think it could do wonders for record keeping. And for a guy like me, look, I don't, you know, I don't purchase these high dollar investment type cards, but I am trying to help keep record of them for the hobby's sake, and that could be huge. And a lot of this is going to be hypothetical until it actually happens, but someone on Blowout simplified what the process could look like. I want to adapt that a little for basketball and share that with you here. So let's say, you know, that they get this program rolling and it is actually functional, which once again, that's a big if. Um, In theory, Panini makes a high-end Zion RPA. So then, or they make, you know, 99 of them for National Treasures. Each card in that print run has a unique identification number or a QR code of sorts picture of the card and the ID number are both uploaded into an online database ahead of the release. Um, Let's say then I buy the card from Panini or I pull it from a box or a pack. Distribution is going to be tricky, so we're going to really skip that part for now. Um, Once I acquire the card, though, I verify its authenticity by logging the ID number into their database. This is where I can view where the card came from um, in the First case, that would be from Panini. You know, they were the only other owner of the card, but then over time there will be other owners of this card. Um, I can also see a picture of the exact card, and I can find out about the Jersey's provenance if they have that info, if it was game worn, if they you know, wanted to tell me what game it came from. Now, let's say I wanna sell or trade that card to someone else. That person um, verifies the authenticity of the card by logging the same identification number Um, they can then see who owned the card last, which in this case would be me, um, and it would provide us a record of ownership, which is something that, um, for some cards already, I've worked very hard to try and piece that together and there's always missing links. So it would be nice to have that information automatically logged in there. The key component of all of this though, is that people have to make the effort to log any transactions into Panini's platform. Otherwise, the blockchain is broken and the authenticity of the card is um, compromised, so to speak. Um, All right, so we know there are a lot of boneheads out there that are buying and selling cards. So, why does it really matter if people take the effort to log the cards or not? The card itself still exists in physical form, right? You know, I, I shouldn't have to log a card to be able to sell it if I have it physically. Um, the the fact of the matter is if you're a buyer of a high end card in this program and you see a gap in the card's history, when you go to look it up, that's going to create a red flag. It benefits the owner of a card to log it as accurately as possible because in this case information is valuable. We've seen this before blockchain was even a thing, you know, knowing that certain shady individuals in the hobby have owned a card at one point can really scare people away from making a purchase. But if you own a card in this blockchain system, then that's valuable, it's worth the time and the effort. Um, So, you know, it's not like people are going to use this for Tony Snell rookies or anything like that. We're talking high profile names and high profile sets. Um, Someone on Blowout summed it up really well when they said, logging a card will be a step that will be required to keep value. Buying an unlocked card is like buying a trimmed card. Sure, it may still hold value, but not as much as an untrimmed card. All right, so well, I think the whole tracking part and the authentication part are major benefits to this concept, um, and some of you might be surprised at how receptive to that I actually was, um, there are still a lot of unanswered questions or problematic scenarios that could play out. For instance, what does Panini do with this physical card? How do they handle that? That's not something that really falls under the umbrella of blockchain. Um, and what if alterations go unrecorded or undetected between transactions? I think this idea will likely prevent patch swaps because we'll always have pictures of the card. But what about trimming? You know, We've seen some of these guys trim a piece off that's as small as one uh, thirty-second of an inch. You know, Maybe Panini shouldn't even release the physical card even if it exists. Um, it could function more like insurance. I guess we wouldn't need the grading companies for these big cards then either. Who knows? Um, Or what happens with eBay returns? Let's say a sale takes place and the identification number has already been switched over. The buyer notices a defect in the card or their kid accidentally bids on it. You know, we've seen that a lot lately. Whatever happens, they need to return it. Is the blockchain able to reverse itself? Um, What if Panini loses their basketball license? You know there are are these are the kind of cards that people are now hoarding as long-term investments. What incentive does Panini have to pour money and resources into the program and the technology if they're no longer in the basketball market? And then speaking of technology, they've already had a number of technical issues with their first off-the-line program, and that's being very kind. Um, how can we be so sure that this goes any better? Like I said earlier, this is all hypothetical. We don't know exactly how Panini is going to roll this thing out. Um, What we do know is that right now we're sticking with the 100 new 101s. My personal take is that this whole 101 thing is simply a way to generate some easy money while also testing out a new idea. I don't think they created this program to sell 101s. Um, The idea could fail, and they'll probably still make a lot of money from it up front. But I think, in the grand scheme of things, they're hoping that this thing grows and they can use it on all of their high-end releases. Um, As a collector, I'm not big on it, but um, if I'm investing in cards, I at least think that this is something that um, could move that portion of the hobby further. Now, are they going to do it right? Probably not, but if it's done well, I think this is something that um, could really take the hobby in a new direction and could prevent a lot of the fraud that we've seen so far, or could at least help to contain it and regulate it some. But who knows? You know, Who's regulating Panini? Who knows? Um, I could be wrong. Maybe you guys have some other thoughts about this program. I'd love to hear from you. Do you think blockchain is something that's going to help or hurt the hobby? Is this just a gimmick, or is Panini onto something here? What do you think? Let me know on my Instagram, which is at waxmuseumpodcast, or my Twitter, which is at WaxMuseumPC. Um, real quick, right before I started recording today, I saw the sad news that former NBA commissioner David Stern has passed away. Um, love him or hate him, he did quite a bit to advance the game. Even before he was commissioner, he formed the league's first partnership with cable television. You have to figure that our hobby grew proportionally as the game grew And as the game became more popular, you know, think about it. He became NBA commissioner in 1984, and we didn't have a major company manufacturing NBA cards. Yes, I know Jordan and Magic and Bird played a huge role, but Stern was really the guy that figured out the league should market around its stars. So he also played a role in the hobby that we love. Um, Additionally, Mr. Stern was featured on several basketball cards if you do want some of his cards in your collection, there were a couple of Star Company cards from 1984. One of them, I think, has Kareem, and the other one has him shaking hands with Red Auerbach. Um, he was a very good signer in the mail after he retired from the NBA. In fact, I asked him to sign the 1986 Fleer checklist for me. I felt like he was the right guy to put on that. Um, he obliged, and, and I'm very thankful. I showed that off on my Instagram this week. I've also talked about my brief in-person interaction with him on another episode. I'm really glad I have that story and I was able to share it with you guys. Um, Thoughts and prayers go out to his family and anyone else that was affected by his passing. All right, um, so that's all I've got for you today. You don't want to miss next week's show because I've got an interview with former Pacer David Harrison. We talk about cards, the infamous brawl in Detroit. Um, Ron Artest, other miscellaneous pacers stuff. I recorded this back in November, but all sorts of hobby stuff has come up since then. Um, But I'm airing this one next week, no matter what happens in the hobby, because I'm really excited about it and I'm tired of sitting on it. I want to release this thing. I want you guys to hear it. So make sure you tune in. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or Google Play. Hit up the Bean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.